let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together to fellowship in the unity of the faith, Father, a unity and a faith that you've given to us as precious gifts from above. Father, may we never become familiar with these gifts or any of the blessings that you've bestowed upon us during our lives, but rather just embrace them, rejoice in them, and always be thankful for them. Father, we pray for those that are still ill in our congregation, that your healing power is upon them and that they might return to us as soon as possible. Your will be done. We pray also, Father, for those that are still lost in this world, that we might be given the opportunity, the precious opportunity to evangelize them so we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a wonderful thought that is, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 19. Uh, go to uh, 1 John 5, 4. Uh, wonderful verse that we looked at on Sunday uh, towards the end of the lesson, I believe, but thought it would be a nice way to kick off this evening's message, 1 John 5, verse 4. <clears throat> if you had a rough day, maybe if you didn't, you just need a friendly reminder, this is a good place to start. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Again, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What a magnificent reminder. We had a special message given to us on Sunday titled, Thank God for Mercy. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I request that you do. It's a bit of a welcome to reprieve from some of the heavier handed lessons we've been enduring uh, for quite some time now. And again, if you haven't listened to it, you'll be glad you did. And I, as always, I would encourage you to do a, actually a, probably a greater number than you think in this congregation, listens to lessons more than once. They listen live, face to face, and then either uh, the next day or something, they fill their time uh, with a, a re-listen. And uh, from what I understand, uh, it's very good for their souls. And so um, just either way, you'll be glad you listened to it. One of the key themes uh, from our previous lessons that set Sunday's lesson in motion was up here on the board, learning to live in the now. No human being other than Jesus Christ has ever lived in any other time than what is now. Just <laughs> think about that. The only one that's ever been outside the construct of time is Jesus Christ. It's the only, he's the only human being in the history of human beings that's ever lived in any other time than now, like right now. Mankind experience, or mankind's experience is limited to the construct of time, yet 
he spends an inordinate amount of said time in the past and or future. And it's the craziest thing when you really get down to it, that we spend so much time dwelling on yesterday, which is gone for good, or tomorrow, which isn't even a reality yet. And it's the silliest thing. And we miss out on so many blessings. I was thinking about just an analogy to drive this point home. Suppose your great uncle has, or aunt, if you're a feminist. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Suppose your great uncle has tickets to your favorite form of entertainment. Maybe it's sideline tickets to the Super Bowl or maybe front row tickets to the Boston Symphony Orchestra or whatever floats your boat. And on the ride to the event, someone cuts you off in traffic and then makes, you know, the little dirty gesture. So instead of enjoying the show, you sit there like a stooge, stewing over something that happened over an hour ago. And before you know it, you've missed the show. As Fred G. Sanford would say, and my sister Kathy, you know the story, you big dummy. You missed the show. I mean, so stupid, right? You missed the show. Because of what? Someone's having a bad day and they decide to send you a little welcome, a rude welcome on the highway. They cut you off. Big deal. Pray for them. Don't let them rob you. Or the other scenario is when you get to the event just fine, but during the show, all you can think about is whether or not you're going to be able to pay your bills next month. And you're riddled with that. Once again, you missed the show. Big dummy. Makes me sad to think about how many blessings we miss out on because we have bought the lie that any other time other than the present is what really counts. That's just a big old lie. The time that really counts is right now. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not a reality. Today is what counts. Right now, in this moment, is what counts. And it's a lie to think that anything else really counts. And I'm not belittling, you know, prudent planning and stuff like that. And that's not what I'm saying. You get the point. Live in the now. What matters on the grand scheme of things is right now. And as the Spirit's been teaching us over the past few years especially, what matters is the very current estate of those still lost in this world, as in right now. I mean, we all probably know more people than we'd like to uh, accept, I guess, to think about that are still lost. And that's right now. Go to Hebrews 3.1. Hebrews 3, verse 1. This is what one of the things that the Spirit's been teaching us. If we personally, as believers, as evangelists, are living in yesterday, we're preoccupied and not focused on the now. And if we're living for tomorrow, we're preoccupied with that and not living in the now. But there's a very current, dire need in this moment regarding people that are still lost. Because tomorrow they might not be around. 
Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast, now this is a big question, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, up here on the board, this, this sort of harkens back to some of our uh, lessons from maybe a year plus ago, until the end, a person who doesn't hold fast until the end is an apostate, someone who was never saved in the first place. Apostasy is a case of false profession of faith, the proof being that said faith doesn't hold up over time. Again, we've learned that in, uh, in spades, if you would, um, over a year ago. Again, until the end, a person who doesn't hold fast until the end is an apostate, someone who has never saved in the first place. An apostasy is a case of false profession of faith, something we've been hearing an awful lot about as of late. The proof being that said faith doesn't hold up over time. Hebrews 3.7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Up here on the board, as long as it is still called today, we are to live in the now, and this is the synthesis that the Spirit's bringing together, we're not always just to live in the now for self. Is there a certain blessing in doing that? Absolutely. But there's a bigger blessing even of living in the now. Because if you don't live in the now, chances are you're focused on your own selfish things, right? Oh, I did this yesterday. I screwed up. Or oh, I got to do this tomorrow. Who are you not focusing on? Others. If you're not in the now, you're just focused on typically your own stuff. Is that fair? Yeah. So part of being in the now isn't just selfish, it's actually for others. You're actually more useful if you live in the now, regarding evangelism even. So we are to live in the now because time is short and there are some who profess faith in Christ who aren't known by Him. Matthew 7, 23, that's Jesus' Jesus's words, I never knew you. The weight of our yesterday or tomorrow in comparison to someone else's eternity. Just put it in perspective. So you had a crappy day yesterday. Join the crowd. Or tomorrow might be, I don't know, bad. 
how do you know? You don't haven't been there yet. Now, we're talking about living in the now for someone else's salvation even, to bring them the gospel. What, do those things, are those even in the same ballpark of importance? I don't think so. One of your days compared to someone else's eternity? And that's the other perspective, I think, that the Spirit's trying to give us here, the value of living in the now. When you begin to live for others, um, you realize that that's really valuable. That, you know what, God gave me breath, He gave me money, He gave me time, He gave me energy. I have an opportunity to go evangelize someone. So this is the divine perspective the Spirit's been giving us. And as a side note, Sunday's lesson reminded us that it is a true blessing to be, to even be able to do so in the first place by the incredible mercy of God. Just to be able to be in the now. Just to be able to be in the now and possibly give someone the gospel. That's an incredible blessing. Just to be able to do it in the first place is one of the wonderful um, results of God's mercy. Again, look at verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Same idea. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So just to put this into a little bit more perspective, up here on the board, most Christians, at least to some degree, are living either in the past or the future or both. This shows a lack of faith as well as an arrogance that does not put others before self. We'll look at Philippians 2, 1 through 8 in a moment. Again, most Christians, at least to some degree, are living either in the past or the future or both. This shows a lack of faith as well as an, an arrogance that does not put others before self. In other words, if you're focused uh, enough on others, I mean, just like Jesus said, there's enough to worry about today, right? I mean, there's enough, there's enough, enough things, if you would, enough concerns, uh, especially when you bring in others before yourself, to keep you focused on today. And that's a very good place to be, and that's what the Spirit's trying to say. And so I, I do want you to know that, you know, if you're lacking in this area, I'm not trying to berate you. Uh, I'm not saying if you don't evangelize three people a day, you're a failure. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying this is a perspective issue. It may take you months before you realize precisely what you're being taught this evening. I don't know. It could be. But this is the perspective. These are the seeds that he plants ahead of time. Maybe six months from now, you're the person who will evangelize someone and you'll save a soul. And it was because you weren't focused on yourself. Yesterday's problems or tomorrow's problems. In that moment, you focused on someone else, which might be a complete change of pace for you. So I'm not trying to berate you, just wake you up a little. So let's consult a little scripture to that same end. Go to Philippians 2.1. Philippians 2, verse 1. 
Philippians 2, verse 1. Lovely passage of Scripture. Wonderful reminder to us all what it means to live in the now. I mean, you're just supposed to live in the now so you can hog blessings for yourself. Or you're supposed to live in the now to live for others. Because you're not living for others if you're living in the past or you're living in the future. You have to live in the now. That's what it means. So Philippians 2.1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Well, that's a really big statement, isn't it? Do nothing, not something, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the attitude um, that we need to have. But what the Spirit's saying is, you're not going to have that attitude if you don't live in the now. If you live in the past or you live in a, a point in time that doesn't even exist yet, uh, these things become um, impossible, in a sense. So if you've noticed, our lessons are dovetailing together at this point from Sunday's message. Again, that was on mercy, strictly speaking. Though these things weren't explicitly stated, only we're able to synthesize these things as a result. Again, the point on the board that the Spirit's making is He's bringing these lessons together. All of this talk about what is repentance and who gets to define it. The Gospel's always sort of percolating up in our lessons. And then we get hit with a whole lesson on thank God for mercy. Uh, most of this is, uh, this is coming together. Excuse me. Most Christians, at least to some degree, are living either in the past or in the future or both. This shows a lack of faith as well as an arrogance that does not put others before self. We just saw that in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So let's net out what the Spirit's saying here, at least in part up here on the board. Again, he's just trying to give you more perspective. Um, it is our duty as loving members of Christ's magnificent body to remind each other that today, right now, is a grace gift from our Heavenly Father. So that's what I'm doing with you right now. It's my job. It's part of my job to exhort you, to encourage you, to equip you, um, so you can go out 
and spread the good news. That's part of my job. It's fundamental to this office even. And part of my job is to remind you that all of these things are grace gifts, including the breath you just took, including the moment in time that you're alive right now, learning, growing, being sanctified. These are all grace gifts that we forget about. That's what he's saying. You, you miss them. You miss the blessings of gratitude if you're living in the past or in the future, if you're not living in the now. So let us share it with others, not being self-absorbed about yesterday or tomorrow. Today is a gift. Let us share it with others, not being self-absorbed or self-absorbed about yesterday or tomorrow. You never know up here on the board. God may use you in your humility to save a soul. I mean, you know exactly what the Spirit's saying. If you're too preoccupied with yesterday or tomorrow, you might miss an opportunity that's literally standing right in front of you. How quickly we forget that or what's really important in life. How quickly we forget what's really important in life. This was how the Spirit stated this on Sunday up here on the board. More perspective. Why do we expend so much time and energy on being anxious? Why do we try to fix yesterday's mistakes and prepare for tomorrow's? Who are we depending on anyways? Matthew 6, 24-34. Trying to fix yesterday, trying to prepare for tomorrow. Who are we depending on anyways? Up here in the board, Matthew 6, 25 and verse 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. I think what the Spirit's saying is that God has it under control. <laughs> Surprise. God has your life under control, verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's enough to ponder right now. So the crux of Sunday's message really was up here on the board. Without mercy, mankind is no hope. Without mercy, mankind has no hope. That was really the crux of Sunday's message up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Paul wrote this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Without mercy, mankind is no hope. The logical question then becomes, what ought to be the cornerstone of our hope? Maybe the more accurate question is who? Who are we living for? That was the last question. Are we living it for yesterday? Are we living for tomorrow? Or are we living for the now? If we're living in yesterday, it's not for Christ. If we're living for tomorrow, it's not for Christ. If we're living for now, we have an opportunity to live for Christ, to live for others, because it's now that people need us. It's now that the gospel can go out. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow, you don't know what gonna, opportunities are going to be like. So you have to focus on the now. So who's, who becomes the cornerstone? The answer is obvious. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. 
This is where the Spirit gave us the following principle to chew on over the weekend. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. John 3, 16-17, Ephesians 2, 4-7, 1 Timothy 1, 12-16, Titus 3, 3-7, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, 2, 9-10, and Jude 17-25. Let's grab the highlight reel, starting with Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians 2, 4. Our hope is in Christ, Christ being the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And as the Spirit kept reiterating on Sunday, you know, God didn't have to send His Son, but He did. And that's a very merciful thing to do because it's through Him that we're saved. It's through Him that we're redeemed, purchased out of the slave market of sin. It's through Him that we're reconciled to our Father in heaven. That's a very merciful thing, considering the estate in which we're born in, considering how unworthy we are of said treatment. And then you're going to give us the opportunity to live in the now and partake in the blessing of evangelizing people, of bringing the greatest thing we've ever known, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, out to a world? <laughs> that you're going to actually use us now? Not just save us, but use us, and in being used, we are blessed? We have the privilege of worshiping you in time? That sounds a heck of a lot like mercy to me. Because without mercy, we'd have none of that. Without mercy, we'd have no hope. Hence the point on the board. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Paul wrote so powerfully of God's mercy, giving us perspective on the way in which God reveals the depths of His grace, love, and mercy. Go to 1 Timothy 1.16. 1 Timothy 1.16. In other words, Paul wrote here about the magnitude, understanding how very far he had been delivered from in full view, with a repentant heart, Paul wrote such things. 1 Timothy 1.16 And some of you can relate. I mean, I mean, we've all made a lot of mistakes, but you know what I'm saying. If we really do reflect upon the awfulness of the things we've done, the sins we've committed against the holy God of the universe, not just each other, uh, as David would say. Uh, if we reflect upon these things, we realize how very far we've been delivered, how truly unworthy we are, and then upon understanding that magnitude, how grateful 
we ought to be. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, if He can deliver this dirt bag, I mean, I used to kill Christians. If He can deliver me, then let my life be an encouragement to all of you. And so it is. But that's what he's saying. This is mercy. I found mercy. It's unmistakable. I wasn't kind of good and he just lifted me up a little. I was horrible. And God is merciful. I want to sneak in a little passage that's not in our list there on the board to amplify Paul's own gratitude here. Go to Ephesians 3.14. We didn't see this on Sunday, but it's such a wonderful passage. Ephesians 3.14 He's just so grateful, and his gratitude just pours out of him. It oozes out of his pores, so to speak. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All of that because of mercy. Because God had mercy on us. Paul was, as we all should be, rightfully overwhelmed by the mercy of God. As the gift goes, so goes his attributes. And since Jesus Christ is described by Paul as indescribable, so is His mercy indescribable. Again, God didn't have to send His Son as a divine show of mercy, but He did. Hence the point on the board. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. We read the next verse twice on Sunday as it is a tremendously fruitful passage penned by the Apostle Peter. Go to 1 Peter 1.3. We read this passage twice. 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Which made sense given all the work that the Spirit was doing in us on the topic of hope and tying hope to mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. And then the last passage we read was something Paul wrote to encourage Jude that we should be encouraged by as well. Go to Jude 17. Jude 17. This is a good reminder for us all. Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Some of you have already conjured up thoughts of, I don't know, co-workers, uh, past friendships, uh, maybe even family members. But we know that there are those that mock us. And the more, the more we settle on, and the more convicted we are, and the more we reveal our convictions regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the more we're going to be mocked. And I'm telling you, do not be surprised where that mockery comes from. In my experience, a lot of it comes from within the church. Not big C, little C's. I don't mean I should say churches. A lot of times, it's other so-called Christians that are mocking us. But they're not mocking us, do you understand? They're mocking God's Spirit. <laughs> they're not mocking us. They're mocking Jesus Christ's own words. So in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Wonderful reminder for all of us, a mixture of what we ought to be grateful for, but also that there's a mixture of individuals that we're going to run into. There are going to be those that are doubting, and we ought to try to save them. And there are going to be some that mock us, and we ought to have fear, real fear in their case, understanding the wrath of God, that many are going to die in their sins. And... I don't know about you, but I don't want my worst enemy to die that way. But many are going to. No matter how hard we've tried to evangelize them, no matter how hard we've tried to give them the gospel truth, they just don't want it. But are we supposed to do as men, and this is where it turned the corner, we got real practical on Sunday if you remember, are we supposed to now bend the rules? Since man won't bend, 
Are we going to turn around to God and say, well, then you bend? Because we've got to get these people here through that gate. And the gate's a little small. They're still a little plump with the flesh, you see. We've got to get them through. And so do we say, well, they're not going to change, so we might as well change. I see this happening in households even where parents, uh, I guess there's this guy, this is kind of funny to me, some guy, of course, is down south. His, I don't want to say he's like 12-year-old son, was caught bullying another kid. So he made the kid run home. And he drove behind him and then posted it on Facebook as a video. And everybody's up in arms. Why? He said, I'm protecting these other kids from my own son. I'm trying to teach them a lesson. The kid was like, yeah, it was a good lesson. <laughs> but everybody else is up in arms. Oh, that's like abuse. No, it's not. That's not abuse at all. See, the world wants the parent to bend to the kid. Well, since my bully kid isn't about to bend, well, then let's bend the rules for my bully kid. And, and that gets transposed on God. That attitude that's prevalent in our own nation now gets transposed on God as normal. Let's stop trying to correct arrogance. Let's try to pervert authority. Let's, let's go to the one long-standing thing that has kept semblance in all of this, authority. And let's, let's try to tear that down and give kids rights, whatever the heck that means. You have a right to live, I guess. Right? I mean, what, what's beyond that? I feed you, I put clothes on you. What do you want from me? I'm serious. What more do you want, Todd? Right? What more do you want? You have a right to live. You don't have a right to try to tell me what to do in my own house. If I want to make you run 10 miles, Sean, Sean's like, I can do it. If I want to make you run whatever, you bully somebody, there's going to be a problem. But see, that's not the way it goes. That's not the and Oh, and by the way, the public is calling the father a bully. They said, no wonder your kid's a bully because you're a bully. So I guess, do you understand? That's what they say about God. God's a bully. God's not merciful. God's not loving. Because he made the gate so small. No way. Stop right there. You see what's going on, right? Same thing. Just a different sphere, a much smaller sphere. Again, the sovereign of the universe did not have to send his only begotten son to save us, but he did. Now, again, as a final exercise in practicality, the Spirit spawned a little critical thinking. I just alluded to it on this topic of mercy, specifically that there exist myriad ways in which the simple topic has been perverted. One way that came to mind for me when I was preparing Sunday's lesson was this one. One particular way in which contemporary, quote, Christian churches have perverted the definition of mercy is to propose the following lie. That God is so merciful that he grants forgiveness even to those who refuse his son. Who refuse to repent, who refuse to be humbled, but live a good life. What? This is Christianity. This is why we... Who are finally who are trying to stand up for truth are mocked. Because you see, we are the ones who side 
with the bully God. We're the ones who say, this is the inerrant truth. And if it says this, then this is what it says. If it says you don't believe in the Son, you're going to die in your sins, there's a problem. What, would you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? So we get mocked. But this is why. This is the garbage that's in the so-called Christian churches. That mercy is no longer mercy. It's something else. So it's become an abomination. Mercy is no longer mercy. It's an abomination. To put it more succinctly, mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate at all. If we got what we deserve, we'd all be sentenced to the lake of fire. But God said, no, I'm going to solve the problem for you. I'm going to open the gate. And you can walk right through. Totally free. You can walk right through. No problems. You just got to abide by my terms. That's all. I was reflecting on this. Um, whether mankind likes to acknowledge it or not, God possesses a justifiable wrath against fallen man. When's the last time? Let's let's come on. Let's be honest. Except for those weirdos that talk about revelation all day long on the television, you know what I'm talking about fire and brimstone, the wrath of God. You know, and they sell books and all that kind of stuff. Except for those people, when when's the last time you heard about a wrathful God, a justifiable wrath on a Christian program? When's the last time you've heard of a justifiable laugh, uh, wrath on Caleb? No offense to Caleb. Better than what else is on 94HDY, right? Getting some death stares here. <laughs> what are you talking about, Caleb? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? When's the last time? They, seriously, why does no one talk about the wrath of God? It's too much like bullying or something. You, you see? That's, that's the problem. Nobody wants to talk about authority as having any strength or power at all. Certainly it's been stripped from the households with children like I just talked about. Certainly our society has stripped all authority of any strength. And if you ever flex, if you ever act in strength like I have to sometimes, people flip out. You've all of a sudden become a complete jackass. Some kind of an abomination. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is godly indignation you're seeing. This is not ungodly. This is justifiable. God's wrath is justifiable on fallen creatures. But nobody's talking about it. They're too busy throwing coins at them with John 3.16 on it. Too busy trying to shoehorn people through the narrow gate. Their perspective is completely wrong. So whether mankind likes to acknowledge it or not, God possesses a justifiable wrath against fallen man. And it seems contemporary churches have forgotten this. What people don't seem to remember is that salvation itself is by definition being saved from the wrath of God. 
He says, you want to be separated from me? Great. Go to hell. No, I'm serious. I mean, that's not a punchline. It's very sad. But that's the wrath of God. And that's what judgment looks like when it's executed justifiably and fairly upon a fallen, undeserving person who happens to be arrogant and refuses the only way to reconciliation through Christ. But some people will say, well, since that's the only way, it's not merciful. His mercy is not wide enough. So they widen it. And they tell lies. And when we come along and tell the truth, we get mocked. And we lose friends. <laughs> In the churches! People seem to overshadow God's wrath with His love. And so-called, quote, mercy, I guess I'll call it, which isn't really His mercy at all, but some perversion of it. That is to say that contemporary Christianity uses grace, love, and mercy as a virtual shoehorn that widens the gate that leads to life. And this is insulting to the sovereign Lord God of the universe. We must always remember that God is immutable. Immutability means that God is unchangeable. He does not change. He's not about to change just because man is refusing his terms of salvation. But yet, if you look at modern Christianity, that's exactly what is being proposed. Let's weaken God and strengthen man. Let us change God. Let us take the inerrancy of the Bible itself out of the picture. Let's play a few little theological tricks and poof, Jesus Christ is gone from the picture. We'll call that dispensationalism. He's gone. Now everything he said is out the window. The one who the gospel is after, even. And what do you have left? A pliable, weak God. That's not sovereignty. That's not immutability. That's literally all the opposite of those things. In other words, his creatures don't get to come along and weigh in on what is right and wrong, good or bad, light or darkness. These things are set in stone from eternity past. God is not required to accommodate man on man's terms, regardless of what arrogance suggests. As I've been teaching now for years up here on the board, on God's mercy, salvation is given to those willing to receive it on God's terms, not some, quote, negotiated contract invented by man through his own reasoning and sensibilities towards self. There's no negotiation, in other words. Mercy is a non-negotiable term. The Bible describes its limits with respect to salvation. Mercy is a non-negotiable term. I don't think people understand that. I think mercy is not even taught correctly anymore. Mercy is now taught as some, something to negotiate with God. Well, since you're merciful, and I'm a jackass, and I'm arrogant, can we find some middle ground here? Isn't that what mercy is? No. Mercy is that you have a way into heaven. Mercy is a, that you have a, a, one iota of an opportunity 
to be reconciled with a holy God. That's what mercy is. That's what grace is. Oh, no, but that's not what I was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking this. I'm over here in my sin, and God's holy over there, and mercy lets us sort of negotiate. Come up with some little contract, you see? We'll negotiate terms, and I'll get into heaven. Because that's all I want anyways. I don't want to leave the self-life behind. I'm too arrogant. I just want a free ticket. What must I do, you know? Let's negotiate terms, huh? I'll do a little for you, you do a little for me. Don't work that way. God doesn't negotiate with man. But if you, if you peel back the onion, if you, if you pull back the covers on modern Christianity, that's exactly what is being proposed. That is precisely what is suggested. That is exactly the spirit of their doctrines. Salvation is given to those willing to receive it on God's terms, not some negotiated contract invented by man through his own reasoning and sensibilities towards self. Mercy is non-negotiable term. To our previous point, again, mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate at all. Go to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. Go there quickly. That's what mercy is. Everybody wants to take mercy and grace and love and, and, and somehow shoehorn the gate that leads to life. That's not it. You don't get to take a perverted definition. This isn't, mercy doesn't mean God's negotiable. Mercy is more like God's willing to receive you at all. That God sent His only begotten Son. That's mercy. That He's willing to save you. To impute perfect righteousness to you. That's grace. Not some negotiable term. Not some jackass says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And God negotiates with me because He loves me. He don't negotiate with you. He don't negotiate with you. He's not in that business. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, that's what grace looks like. That's what mercy looks like. When God becomes a man and dies for us. How about that? For those people who say He's not merciful enough. That He's not loving enough. Really? But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want a demonstration of God's love? There it is. If Christ isn't enough for you, then how do I, even, how do I teach that? If Christ isn't enough for you, what am, what am I supposed to teach? Other than you're a jackass. If Christ isn't enough for you, you have way bigger problems. You, you, that's, that's your problem. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from what? what? What were we talking about earlier? The wrath of God. You're saved from the wrath of God, which is completely justifiable. Through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, the point on the board, mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. 
It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate at all. And just a little perspective, this must cause us to take pause and rejoice in God's merciful plan to sanctify us. That's the right perspective. Not, what isn't God supposedly not doing for man? Not negotiating. Why won't God come to the table? It's 2018. That's what the Pope's doing. Who's grotesque. That, if that guy was a character, he'd be so ugly. Talking about abomination. This must cause us to take pause and rejoice in God's merciful plan to sanctify us. So you ask yourself, isn't it enough, just with the right perspective, isn't it enough what God has done for fallen men? (laughs) But man's never satisfied up here on the board. Instead of focusing on what God supposedly doesn't do for mankind, we ought to rightly focus on all that He does for His fallen creatures. God's mercy is far beyond human comprehension even. For who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart except Him? And yet man is never satisfied with God, always willing to challenge Him, His grace, His mercy, His love. And the truth of the matter is that we have no right, we have no right to question God on anything unless we are in humble pursuit of what Jesus said. Seek His kingdom first. You want to ask God questions? Then ask Him questions. Seek the truth. But don't question God as Satan questions God. Don't question His veracity. Do not take into question His authority, His sovereignty, His lordship. You see, all those words I just gave you, they're tainted now. They're um, dirty words in Christian churches. Wrath, sovereignty, lordship. And if you use those words, um, you're going to get mocked. This church, oh, by the way, is actively being mocked right now for using such terms. <laughs> Some of you don't know, but that's fine. doesn't matter. Actively being mocked by so-called Christians so-called brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? No tolerance for the truth, obviously. Weakness, obviously. Lack of strength, obviously. Confusion, even. We have no right to question God on anything. If we are trying to find loopholes or even redefine godly definitions such as for mercy... We are nothing more than Satan in that moment. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. In that moment, where was Peter's mind? On the thoughts of man. Jesus Christ said as much. You're thinking like a man. Get behind me, Satan. You're reasoning like a man. Get behind me, Satan. If we're trying to find loopholes or redefine or bend definitions where mercy becomes a a seat at a negotiation table, this kind of a thing, we are acting like Satan. If Christ were in that moment, he'd say, get behind me, Satan. He'd say, get out of here, Satan. Our minds are set on the flesh, 
lawyers doing what they do best, lawyering. That's the satanic way up here on the board. We never have the right to put God on trial. That is what Satan in the kingdom of darkness suggests we do. For example, if a man to question the, quote, limits of God's mercy is to put him on trial. And here's one of the softer themes that has been coming out of our lessons, if you haven't caught it. To put God on trial is to end up with a different gospel every time. That's the problem. You cannot negotiate the terms of the Bible, of the gospel. You cannot negotiate in a, with an immutable God. <laughs> He's not interested. He said, I am loving. I am merciful. What did we just read? He said, this is the great demonstration of my grace, love, and mercy. I gave you my son, who was perfect to die for you. And then you want to come back at me and say, that wasn't enough? I'm not merciful enough? And some jackass in a big hat who rides around a bulletproof vehicle is going to, what, redefine who I am? And then millions, millions and millions of people are going to follow that jackass? And some of you won't stand up for them in the light of these people? You spend inordinate amounts of time with them and you fellowship with them more than you fellowship with people of the true faith? And you don't say a word? Think about that. But they're my drinking buddy. Yeah, what's God think about that little scenario? Go to Galatians 1.1. What's God think about that? You negotiating terms. with people that have no regard for Jesus Christ or the true gospel that God has set forth regarding salvation itself. That's what he's saying. Galatians 1.1 Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man. That's what I love about Paul, you see? Sometimes I get these weird looks from people I'm like, man, this guy's kind of crazy. No, can you imagine if Paul was up here? You guys would be so sick of him. He said, look, I, I'm not here. I, I, men didn't send me here. Are you kidding me? I'm here, to, I'm here to preach the truth. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'm out of time. I'll just give you that Greek word again, metastrepho. Distort means to turn something into its opposite by adding moral law to the gospel. False teachers effectively destroy God's grace, mercy, 
turning to the message of unmerited favor into merited or earned favor. Let me just read this real quick with you. Look at verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Not according to man. But I would argue, and most of you know this, that the so-called gospel that is preached from Christian pulpits today is exactly from man. It's some watered-down, weasel-little-god gospel that negotiates with people and accommodates with man and his flesh and then calls it grace, mercy, and love. God is so loving. He's so merciful. Everybody come into heaven. Everybody. God is just so loving. You Muslims, you Hindus, you Catholics who abide by Catholicism, because if you do, you can't get in. I'm sorry. Wrong doctrine, wrong gospel. All you people, just come on in. What, whose gospel is that? Is that the immutable gods? The one that says, this is it? Or is that man's? Isn't it obvious? Welcome to the flight. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege, this wonderful privilege to receive truth, cold hard truth from Holy Scripture, Father. Scripture that your Spirit himself authored. Father, thank you for truth that sets us free. May we never be pressed down to the point where we quit. We know that our faith can't quit because as we opened up with this evening, it is that very thing that overcomes the things of this world. Father, thank you for that blessing and so many others. We just ask for your traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.